The first few sentences of this week's book are pretty intense. I'm going to read them because they really do set the tone for the whole novel. Here we go. I don't think I will ever get married. Why should I? All it does is make you miserable. And so begins It's Not the End of the World by Judy Bloom. Like most of Judy's books, this one addresses a big issue and the way that it impacts young people. The issue here is divorce. It's Not the End of the World was published in 1972, just as the author was beginning to notice her own children asking questions about changes in their friends' family structures. Our main character here, Karen, is definitely experiencing those changes. At the beginning of the book, she is still living with both of her parents and her two siblings, but things in the household are incredibly tense. Within a few chapters, we learn that dad is moving out, a piece of news that is obviously a challenge for the kids to process. Over the course of It's Not the End of the World, Karen and her siblings very slowly learn to adjust to their new normal, with plenty of bumps in the road. Today, my guests and I unpack the highs and lows of their emotional journey, sharing our personal takes on how those highs and lows were depicted on the page. We talk a lot about our frustrations with the adults in the book, consider what's changed over the years as far as how we talk to kids about divorce, and reflect on what's timeless for children experiencing tough times. We do talk briefly about red flags for domestic abuse, so please be mindful of that if it will be triggering for you. Today we have Laura Taylor Namey on the show. Laura is the New York Times and international best-selling author of Reese's Book Club Pick, A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow, The Library of Lost Things, When We Were Them, and two forthcoming titles. A British Girl's Guide to Hurricanes and Heartbreak will be available on September 26, 2023. A proud Cuban-American, Laura can be found hunting for vintage treasures and wishing she was in London or Paris. She lives in San Diego with her husband and two children. This former teacher writes young adult novels featuring quirky teens learning to navigate life and love. She holds a BA in elementary education from the University of San Diego and is the winner of the Peggy Miller Award for Excellence in Young Adult Fiction. You can find Laura on Twitter at Laura T. Namey, on Instagram at Laura underscore Namey, and on TikTok at Laura Taylor Namey. Thanks to Laura for taking the time to chat with me for this episode. I also want to say thank you to all of you for listening to and supporting the podcast. We wouldn't be here 260 episodes later without you. If you are a newer listener, welcome. You can keep up with podcast news and lots of other fun stuff by following along on social media. SSR is at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. If you still want more SSR, Patreon is absolutely the way to go. For as little as $1 per month, you can become a patron of the show, which means you're taking an active role in keeping it going, but you also get tons of other extra rewards. From bonus episodes and monthly newsletters to bonus Q&As with every guest and an amazing exclusive book club, I have the best time putting extra content together for the Patreon community. Learn more and join us at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. If you'd like to show your love for the podcast and aren't quite sure if Patreon is the right choice for you, you can also support us by leaving a five-star rating or review on your podcast player of choice, recommending SSR to a friend, or posting about this episode on social media. If you tag me, I will be sure to share it. We know that sharing is caring, so I always love sharing with you about Libro.fm. Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, is the only place I buy and listen to audiobooks. 
If you're an Audible listener, I challenge you to give Libro.fm a try using code SSRPODCAST, which will give you a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Amazon certainly has its place in our lives, but I love finding alternatives that support smaller businesses. And that's exactly what you get with Libro.fm. It offers the exact same audiobooks as the ones you'll find on Audible, but it supports independent booksellers instead of a giant corporation. Give it a try and let me know what you're listening to and loving. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Laura. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. And we are talking about a book by Judy Bloom, the great Judy Bloom, that I actually somehow never read. It's not the end of the world. It was published in 1972. And I say that it's surprising that I've never read it, or I sort of hint at the fact that it's surprising that I never read it for a few reasons. First of all, I've been doing this podcast for over five years, and we have done a lot of Judy Bloom. So we are really getting to the point where it's a treat when I get to come back to Judy. But I, as a child of divorce, feel kind of bummed out that I never got to read this book when I was a kid because as I was reading it now, like the little five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds inside of me had like so many feelings. So I'm really looking forward to unpacking It's Not the End of the World with you, Laura. And I'd love to hear a little bit from you about why you chose this book to revisit or to visit for the first time, any memories you have of it or any memories you have about Judy in general. Well, thanks for having me again. And well, I'm a Judy fan, but this was another one that I had not heard of. And I did read Judy when I was a girl, but my memory of her and and those texts is really fuzzy. And, you know, everyone knows the big ones like, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret and Blubber. But I had not heard of this one. And also it's an interesting thing that the new uh, Judy Bloom is published by the same imprint that I am. So she's an Athenaeum sister, which makes me like extremely excited. And I think that's really cool that we're under the same imprint. So I thought, hey, let's do that. Let's do Judy. You know, she's classic. And um, I was excited to to find something from the vault that I had not heard of. So yeah. Always fun to dust something off. Out of curiosity, which Judy Bloom books do you most remember from when you were growing up? Gosh, I would just say those two that I mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not a big, I write young adult and I remember my daughter reading some of them, but there's been so much more now that, yeah. you know, even though I, I used to teach school and I would have these books in my library and parents would donate books or I would get them from my classroom library and the, the students would read a lot of those. But um, at the time, you know, my recent reading has been so much more YA. Right. And maybe my more current middle grade. Uh, I have a lot of friends who write middle grade right now. And so I think it's important, you know, to look at these older texts and, and um, that they still have a place. 
but it's been a while. It's kind of like getting off the, the fuzz from my, from my head here. Um, and remember these things existed and, you know, they came out and they're quite revolutionary. So yeah. And shifting into a new gear. Like I always find, especially with the podcast, like some weeks we're doing middle grade, some weeks we're doing YA. And then in my personal reading life, I read mostly adults. And so I feel like I'm always shifting gears and trying to remind myself to come to a book, not only reminding myself of the time period in which it was written, but also reminding myself of like who it was written for, which age group. And I think that's also constantly shifting because I'm sure Judy, like the 10 year old maybe that Judy was writing for in 1972 is not necessarily the same 10 year old that a middle grade author is writing for in 2023. Because while some things are universal and timeless, we're all shifting and our experiences change. So I think that's a really good point. Like we sort of have to reset every time we come to a new work like this. That was really shocking for me. And I'm sure we'll unpack a lot of this later that what would and wouldn't fly in here and what I would have done differently or what a divorce book might look like today. To If you are an author and you're listening to this and you're, you want to write middle grade and you want to write about these topics that children are facing, would you do it this way or would you add some different uh, approaches and take that? Yeah, I, I'd say yes. And so I'm looking forward to, to unpacking why. So, and also some things are, are timeless and beautiful and, um, and true. And those things kind of resonate and those don't change. So I think it's really juicy. It's good to talk it, about. It is juicy. <laughs> Judy is always juicy. She somehow mm-hmm. always manages to be juicy. Um, we always kind of talk about the fact that like each of Judy's books is like the blank book. So of course, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret is like the period book and Forever is the sex book. And this, It's Not the End of the World is the divorce book. And what was interesting that I found as I was researching before you and I jumped on to chat today is that in some of the blog reviews and like the reflections that people wrote after coming back to the book, much like you and I did, they talk about the fact that like, because divorce has become such a, common part of our lives like I think when she wrote this book in 1972 divorce was really taboo and kids really didn't know how to talk about it and so a lot of these bloggers and reviewers refer to the fact that like because divorce is less taboo and people are while it's still like a challenge for them people are at least more comfortable with the concept of it that maybe that's why this book of Judy's has become one of the less celebrated or the less talked about just because of like all of her books it's maybe now covering something that's like not quite as juicy or controversial and I hadn't thought about that I thought that was a unique take I think it's it's definitely more sadly normalized but in a good way in that there are so many resources and books and programs and and now even cartoons that deal with this even Sesame Street (laughs) deals with this but considering if you are a child, you are a singular child in a singular family, if you are going through divorce or any kind of trauma like that, it is controversial to you. Yeah. Because what else do you know but the security in, of your home and family and, and your entire foundation has been, is being shifted? So I think, I don't think that's necessarily fair, you know, to Judy to say that all the way. Because yes, while the topic is much more normalized and much more accepted, kids are going to therapy as they should to process their emotions and process their feelings and to kind of provide a healthy path to maintain communication and a sense of security 
within their family structures. Those things are better now than they were when I was, I'm a child of the eighties, you know? <laughs> so growing up and seeing friends getting, with parents getting divorced and yeah, it was not as common. But to that, think, I, well, I always write for one child, one teen, because it doesn't matter what's going on in the world or what the world looks like. When you are a small child with a singular heart, that is world ending to you. It yeah. is the end of the world to you. And mm -hmm. I don't think that has changed. Even I think that initial shock has not, but then maybe resources and, and things are better now and teachers are better, my goodness. Friend groups are more supportive. I remember my, you know, my daughter or son having friends going through divorce. They are much more sympathetic and empathetic. They can talk about it with their friends and help support them where maybe, you know, that wasn't quite as true here. It was a little scarier for Karen, um, the protagonist. So yes, things have changed, but also I don't think people have changed all that much in the way that we, we experience those core things of, as being human. Yeah. So maybe what I take from what you just said is that this book should not sort of have fallen out of the spotlight because while it's really easy for adults to sit back and say, oh, maybe this isn't as juicy or controversial as a book about sex or a book about puberty, a kid who would find this book would still need it just as much in 2023 as they may have in 1972. And so we really need to make sure that this is a book that kids still have access to. Because like I said, I, I mean, I was a child of the 90s. So it's interesting. We have a book written in the 70s. You're a child of the 80s. I'm a child of the 90s. We can really have this like unique perspective on a nice like swath of time here. I don't remember this being one of the Judy books that was at the forefront of my library. And so maybe the takeaway, at least what I hear from your point, which is a great one, is like, while we as a society might be able to say that this is a Judy book that's less like in vogue or necessary, a kid isn't going to feel that way. A kid is going to want to need it just as much. I understand that the kids reaction the whole family there's three children in this family and there are friend groups i think are very good my issue with why i would not say this is the if you're i wouldn't necessarily I would, this would not be the only book i would give a child i agree <laughs> because of the emotional stagnancy here with some of the reaction the way that the parents react and i think maybe that is a sign of the times that i don't my parents would not have talked to me that way if they had gotten divorced. And I didn't see that with my friend's parents. And just the emotional resonance for me is lacking. The emotional hit of things and the emotional authenticity of moments. I think Judy, and I don't know because like in books were written so much differently in the 70s. And I, I don't fault her for that. I just that it's so one note at times and... I want layers um, when I'm talking to my own children about things. It's not, I wanted more for these kids. I felt for them. And maybe that is important that if you're going to give this book to a seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year old, whatever that you preface that I wanted those parents to have a, a honest conversation with their kids instead of playing this passive aggressive games. And these poor kids are hearing everything over the phone. You know, they're hearing phone conversations and mother being so, you know, distraught and the mother locking herself in the room for a while and the father then taking them out for expensive dinners and trying to this passive aggressive note. And I know that's a reality of divorce. It's a reality of emotion and humanity. But I want more for our kids. I want more as a teaching tool. And I think why, I mean, middle grade doesn't need to be a didactic thing of you will learn something from this but i think right. goodness how many letters have i gotten that teens are like your book helped me to process my 
friend group situation or my family situation or my heartbreak. And it wasn't the only way, but it was one way that was healthy. Even in toxic things, like showing a way out of toxicity, a way out of, of pain and heartbreak and, and bad choices, but showing a good, you know, hopeful ending is something that would good. But I let's be authentic with our emotions, with babies. You know, let's give them more. I wanted more for these kids than they got. Yeah, there's a lot of game playing that happens in this yeah. family. And then I think the kids follow suit. So I will note one thing before we get into the real meat of this book, which is that the author's note at the end of the novel talks a little bit about where Judy Bloom was in her life when she wrote It's Not the End of the World. And she she sort of gets into that author's note um, by sharing the fact that she, at the time of writing the book, was living in a suburban neighborhood in New Jersey. If you have watched the Judy Bloom documentary on Amazon Prime, this will all come back to you. As soon as I started reading this book, I was like, oh, I feel like I know exactly where this happened in the documentary. She was living in this suburban neighborhood in New Jersey, and she realized that some of her children's friends were going through divorce in their own families. And she realized that her kids didn't have a language for it, and she didn't yet have a language to talk to her kids about what was going on. And she wanted to help her children to understand more. And in the way that Judy always did, she realized that if her kids were feeling that way, other kids probably felt that way. But what I thought was really interesting and telling is that she also is honest in that author's note about the fact that her own marriage at the time was not moving in a good direction. And she was sort of trying to like ignore the fact that she and her own husband were moving toward divorce. And I thought that like even the fact that she dedicated this book to her husband, which she is open about in that author's note, like Things really were going so terribly that I thought I could save my marriage by dedicating this book about divorce to my husband. So she was going through it in her own life when she was writing this book. And so I wonder if the behavior, the bad behavior of the adults in the book, if that's reflective of kind of how she was feeling and what she was going through or maybe not processing very well. That helped me. That author's note I think is really necessary because hurting people hurt people and they also write from a you write from a place of what you've seen and what you know and that informs everything you do and I think that's a really important note and I like I don't fault Judy I she's writing for a different time she's writing for she's doing I think the best that she can and doing well in centering this for the maybe the first time in this type of literature yeah like for kids so you know I give her props for that but there's like again we have other books now like so yes. that's why I say this is not the only text I would give no <laughs> a child also just teaching children how to be in relationships this is not how you know and that's good to show but then you want to show uh, there's some other middle grade writers that are writing about the toughest topics I know yet the emotions there's there's time to unpack them and uh, the emotional arcs are a little bit richer so I would I would say read a lot of things <laughs> Just, just do one book because you know you need a broad spectrum. And but I applaud her. I applaud anyone who has the courage to be the first to be the pilot. You know, to do that because we stand on their shoulders and we learn from them and we we see what has been done and what could be done and possibilities. And she opened up the door for so many of us who who do write these about tough issues. So. It's tough. It's it's tough to balance. I mean, Judy walked so so many people could run. And mm -hmm. again, as a child of divorce, my parents got divorced when I was two. And so I have processed and reprocessed that many times over the last 30 years. And I have read countless books and stories and novels about divorce. And yes, I would agree with you that this is a very 
non-nuanced yeah. presentation of, of what this can look like. And at the same time, there are some core feelings that the protagonist experiences that I think I would have connected with as a kid. And I do applaud Judy for like giving it a shot and and creating a place where young readers could at least have a starting point. And I'm so glad that there are so many other more nuanced versions of this narrative that have come out since then. But let's get into Karen, uh, who is our protagonist. And to your point, Laura, the first thing we really learn about Karen is that she kind of like thinks marriage just makes people mean. Like that's the literal first <laughs> sentence is that like, yes. my teacher was way nicer before she got married. I don't think I'll ever get married. She yeah, said that's like, the first line. I'm not ever getting married. <laughs> that's the first line. And as you were saying a few moments ago, like, you know, I don't know that this is necessarily like the healthiest way to present relationships for kids. Which is not to say that every single kid needs to aspire to get married one day. But again, as a kid who grew up seeing divorce and seeing damaged relationships, I think what is not productive is to feel as though as a kid who grew up seeing that, you then need to link that with the like foregone conclusion that you will also never get married or pursue those kinds of relationships. Like that made me sad that that was the first thing because I I don't think I think I went through phases in my young life when I felt that way but I was so glad that I saw examples of children who were in my situation who then went on to witness happy marriages and happy relationships and then went on to have those themselves and so I was like oh no (laughs) this is really gonna make me sad if if what we're potentially getting here is a story for children of divorce who are then going to be like yeah I'm like Karen I'm also never going to pursue a relationship I don't I don't want this either like not only are her parents unhappy but she's immediately assuming that her teacher is only unhappy because she got married yeah I mean I grew up with this literally one of my more than one of my friends, like I had a really happy childhood and my parents were married until my father passed away. And I just, I just celebrated my 25th wedding anniversary. So I am in, you know, a good marriage. But when I was growing up, especially in junior high and high school, I had friends who were so guarded yeah, about relationships, not like I'll never get married, but just with like, and this is before you could Google people or like find out on, you know, put out these Facebook things about like, who are you dating or who, you know, you, right. who are you getting involved with? And they automatically had up walls before when they would meet somebody. I'm like, why? Just give it a go. They're like, I don't, I can't risk that mm-hmm. because of my home. Like I've seen, you don't know what I've seen. And that's true. And I, what I learned about that, I didn't understand, but I had no, like, that wasn't the way I led. I was like, let's just give people a chance. Let's, you know, let's try. So we are a product of our experiences and and we're, we're so shaped and informed everything we do. And so, and I understand that. And children think so um, immediate and all sweeping. It's not, they don't think in nuance and layers. That's why helping them show them that they are, there is part of what I think good resonant literature is doing is writing stories that engage them and meet their needs while also presenting those layers for them because they can't process them on their own. And so showing them that, and that's why I think it's helpful when she meets her friends and sees a mother dating and having fun and and dating someone else and that you can go on and, oh, I can be happy again. I can find a new relationship or, or we're divorced and we, you know, and we're happy too that there's, you don't have, of course you don't have to get married, but I am, it's funny because I'm writing a book that 
deals with this not a happy marriage and a teen who's now doesn't want thinks that she doesn't want to get married and is kind of doing that oh interesting yeah, i know that's why i was like oh my goodness that's it's kind of that over you know she sweeps everything under the rug like i'm not doing this no way i'm not going to subject another kid to what i've been subjected to and they tend to sweep everything into one bottle that this is the only way it is because because of the way the brain works and development works that again kids are immediate teens up until what 22 you're very in the moment and everything you're trying to process as you're learning you're learning as you're going so i think i think it is interesting and that first line you know i'm never getting married is so true and i that is exactly it's very true it's that is very authentic for karen to be feeling and it's good like what is good storytelling here is that you want more for her as a reader and you care about her as, as a reader that you want her to expand her views and to learn about life in a way that she doesn't have to get married if she doesn't want to but the key that i'm struggling with you know in writing this is like it should be because you don't want to not because you're running from something yes that yes, you're yes, running yes. toward a thing uh -huh. of a to, toward an ideal of who you want to be rather than you are escaping something bad i don't and i think you know processing trauma we do learn from trauma and we have to block some people out of our lives we have to redo but good life should be about seeking what's good for us and not not seeking what's bad sometimes like there's got to be a point where we stop doing things because of a negative way and we start doing things in a positive way because it's what we choose not reacting to everything and i think that's what therapy can do that's what growing up can do that's what really considering emotions and so right here she's saying it's a negative reaction because of this i'm never gonna do that instead of hey i came from a healthy family but that's just not for me or i saw bad marriages and good marriages my teacher my other my math teacher is like really happy in her marriage and she shows pictures of her kids all the time but I don't want that. I want to go, I want to be a doctor and work all the time and, and live at the hospital. I don't want to do this. Or I, that's just not the way I'm rigged. That's a positive reaction because they're doing something to feed their own sense of worth. Right. And not running from something all the time, which is a negative response. Yeah. It's also just heartbreaking to see this 12 year old like jaded about relationships so early, like at its most, at, like at its most basic level, it just makes me sad to see that all of these different examples of married adults in her life are reinforcing each other like she's coming to sixth grade with this particular view of what it means to be a married person because what we find out shortly after that opening sentence is that things at her house are very tense and very stressful all the time and now she's making an assumption that the reason her teacher is suddenly not as nice as she was before is because she's married and so that must mean that all marriage is unhappy and it reminds me a little bit of like and we've talked about it on the show before there was a trend, and I think it's sort of fallen out of favor, but I would say like in the early to mid aughts, and Sarah Dustin is the author that comes to mind, though there are many others who have done this, but like so many of the protagonists in Sarah Dustin's books are like, I just can't fall in love. Like I will never fall in love because it never goes well for me, you know? And like, that's the basis of the whole story. And then, you know, spoiler alert to all of them, they end up meeting somebody who changes everything and they have to push past that jaded attitude and they realize that love is real on and on and on. You can listen to the Sarah Dessen episodes, listeners, if you want more of that. But yeah, it, it's sort of, as you were talking, Laura, I realized that like Karen is almost laying the groundwork for that because mm -hmm. 
that's just sort of how she's entering her own story. And it, it just so hasn't been my experience at all. Like my, my husband and I are both children of divorce and both children of sort of unconventional family situations in different ways. And we always say like, I don't know that I could have wound up with somebody who had a more traditional family just because that would have been hard for me to connect to. But I think both of us share this idea that like our experiences growing up with our families didn't make us not want those things. It made us more intentional about what we did pursue in our lives. And we've, I mean, we're, we got married very young and we've been married almost eight years. We've been together 14. So I think that um, as much as I feel for Karen, having been through some of this myself, I, in a 2023 version, would hope that Karen would, um, you know, just as you said, want a little bit more for herself, maybe be feeling out what her options might be instead of on page one being like, I'm never getting married. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's kind of, we're coming out of that age. And I grew up in this age. I was born in the late seventies. You know, it's so it's like children are seen and not heard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I come from a Cuban family and that's even like, there's a different, there's a whole different Latino thing going on there with family dynamics and patriarchy and, and, stuff and relationships a whole different thing that we will not unpack here but <laughs> you can read my books if you want me to unpack those but yeah i just think it was so typical though i think now children as people and humans are valued a lot more and they should be by teachers by medical professionals by mental health professionals by authors even by tv writers kids are put into they're given importance they're given a voice and I think that shows sometimes too much and that can become entitlement and that can lead into some issues that we're having. But when that's done well and you're raised well and you're raised with a sense of empathy and sympathy for others, you learn that, yes, you still have to obey your parents. You still have to follow rules and you have to submit to you know whatever your family is doing that you do matter as well. You have a seat at the table in hard conversations and that is not taking place here. And I think that is the sign of the times and it shows the difference in how children are posited in our society and how they're reconciled and, and dealt with or raised, brought up. It's, it's so different. Like I would never, anything happening in our neighborhood or with families, I would sit my kids down and say, okay, this is what's going on. Do you have any questions? How can we help you? Like, what's weird about it for you? What are you feeling? Can I help you with any of those things? And then they would express some fears or some, or like, we're fine. Okay, it's fine. You know, we don't care. Like, okay, just checking in, like just checking in with them and not letting them fill in information on their own because if you're a child, just based on, again, on how our brains work, you will fill in misinformation in the worst way possible. And then you will conject, you will make conjectures, you will make, and we still do this. If your communication is, is the key to this, even when families aren't working out, if both parties can still communicate in a, in a loving, empathetic way, then that leaves less space for these kids to make up things because I guarantee you knowing kids have having kids being a kid and working with them they will pick the worst thing it will be their fault it will be their choice something they did and even if the parents said oh it's not you it's us it's not good enough like you have to to walk them through these things and explain why and just ask them what's scaring you what can we do to make this easier you know maybe we'll have a time just to talk and you know, and if the parents can't do that, then find people who can, another family member or a, a medical professional, a mental health professional, 
that's not going on here. No. That's why I think we're doing better in that respect. And, and it shows the side. And again, why this is important, but it's not the whole story. And no book is the whole story. But I think this play this, you know, definitely belongs in a middle grade library, but among others others yeah yeah i mean the book is rife with examples of karen just filling in all kinds of gaps and making up explanations and i get that i mean i have done that my whole life like just make things up to calm our to just make we need to make sense of the world and if we don't have the information that we need to actually understand what's going on then we fill in the gaps ourselves and often we get some really bad results from that. Um, and we see that in this book. We'll talk about that. So let's just talk about how like toxic the environment in Karen's home is um, at the beginning. The cake. I'm like, who? Okay. I wrote a book about Cuban bakery. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like in the first chapter, that mother <laughs> like bakes a salon cake. I'm sorry. I am not over this cake. Judy, Judy. <laughs> Like the dad complains that it's the wrong flavor, and she's like, "Well, oh my gosh!" Like, then no one's eating cake, you know. <laughs> and she drops the cake, and I'm like, "I get out of there!" Just like because no, like no Cuban mother would do that. She would say, "Okay, then you don't want any. We're gonna eat the cake by ourselves, okay? But we're not throwing this away." <laughs> you know, like, that was what my mother would have done. Everybody <laughs> here is behaving badly. Like the dad is coming in, and he is just. Zero percent grateful that, that yes. she made a freaking cake on a weekend, yes, right? Like Ugh. by hand, it has the wrong type of of frosting instead of yeah. chocolate. It has mocha, and he doesn't it's want mocha. mocha. That's right, chocolate. Oh. There's oh a huge gosh. difference. You need to, there's a huge distinction. And then, like you said, she just like throws the cake and so then nobody can enjoy it. And it is, oh. it's scary. I mean, it is, you can feel the tension in the house and you can feel the sense that Karen is trying to. And again, I think this is a very natural thing as you are a child and as you're figuring out how to make sense of the world, how to understand relationships, how to kind of create your own like moral compass, especially outside of the explicit direction of your parents. Like it's hard not to try to figure out who's at fault. And she does that over and over throughout this book. Like she's watching this fight in the case of the cake and it's like, okay, was it dad's fault because he came in and was rude and was grouchy or was it mom's fault because she should know that he likes to have his drink after work and I'm like even I just rolled yeah, it so bad. I I'm know. like excuse me like <laughs> he has to have his moment alone right. like with his scotch or whatever he's drinking. Right. So like that was like my husband's childhood more like his era or my, you know like and again sign in the times. Now yeah. like yeah. No get get in here and help with what's <laughs> going on help, at home. Or at least communicate to say, hey, I had a terrible day. Can I just have 10 minutes to chill in my man cave? When my husband did that, absolutely. And I would be having, I was a stay-at-home mom for a long time and I would see that he would come home from owning his own business and be exhausted. And I wouldn't like throw a baby at him right away. So, you know, June the second, but he would also like, I'll be right there. You know, it was a a partnership, you know, and oh gosh, I I don't know. Now I need a piece of cake. I think it is sad. And it was so almost, there are abuse markers in that action. I have seen that we disregard feelings completely for emotion and like that we're going to ruin and destroy things and hurt things to get our way that we're going to destruct something Mm -hmm. to then win is downright abusive. It is an abuse foundational marker 
because that is the root of abuse and you know all of this and it's important because it's real and i almost it's like showcasing that is one thing but we need the rest of the story there to where these things that you saw karen were not how it should be in your house it is not what your kitchen should look like we need the bookend to that because when she saw that i'm like i think to me that's like so much worse than it is portrayed because of what's behind it and the emotion behind it it's very damaging for a child to see it's almost like you know a, a little kid seeing a gift that one parent gave another and then like throwing a vase or i think she, this actually happens doesn't that happen i can't remember i read this yeah lesson, uh, they destroy things or yeah there's a lot oh, of throwing gosh. and it's ugly because then physical actions then tied up with emotion is just like this rage marker as well that we don't want to see in homes you know it's not how to handle anger and we can get in our our pawns area of our brain that can be reactive and if that's not dealt with if we're always reacting and not then being proactive in knowing sides like when like when he comes in the door if i need to walk out and remove yourself from the situation like the mother should have just you know, maybe could have left and say just leave and just diffuse and she still should divorce him <laughs> but right. like is, what is yeah we're done see, let's like when you when you have kids in the room we cannot you've got to filter everything through what these babies are going to see and what they're going to internalize because what they feel and see at her age and at amy's age her sister and even jeff being older 14 or 15 they're going to carry that karen is going to not i'm thinking about that kate karen is going to think about that for the rest of her life every time she sees a mocha cake she will think about that even after she's had therapy or she's even in a good relationship she will always remember that day well and throughout the book we see how each of the three kids is reacting to what's going on in different ways and yes like it doesn't take long after this scene with the cake listeners for us to learn from karen's mom that dad is moving out and they are separating but both before and after we we actually get that news we see jeff karen and amy all handling life in different ways so karen tends to like internalize a lot of it she has this planner that she mm -hmm. writes in every day she grades the day so when we meet her at the beginning of the book, most days are getting like C minuses or lower. And as a very dedicated planner gal myself, I loved this detail that like she has this day planner, even as a 12 year old, she has a ritual with it. It was a very sad ritual, but I got that about her character. So she's internalizing what's going on. Her younger sister, Amy, is figuring out a little bit how to like play the parents against each other. Right. <laughs> she is definitely dad's favorite. Like dad just adores her. And so you see within the first chapter the way that she behaves differently with dad versus mom. And so she is learning how to operate in her family. And I don't necessarily feel like her behavior is angry, but it's manipulative. And the parents are manipulating each other. So she's watching how they can manipulate each other. And she's adapted some of those behaviors. And then Jeff, the older brother, is taking on all that anger. And he, throughout the book, is just getting increasingly, increasingly more tense. He starts to have these different outbursts. At one point, he starts to turn in. Like, his reactions are getting bigger and bigger. And of course, the real, like, climax of the book happens when he runs away. And so it is, I, I did like the way that Judy showed that there are these different ways that these feelings might manifest. And that kids in the same home might take different 
cues from the same parents and handle those feelings in different ways. Definitely. And it really, she did a good job with also age appropriate reactions, like little Amy's, I believe six, right? Yes. Is she about Mm -hmm. six or seven? Okay. Yeah. She was very authentic. She's like, well, I hate you and I hate you too. And I don't hate mommy. And I hate it. Right. That is so six. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and of course, like, I'm sorry, like, I raised two six-year-olds. They are manipulative by nature. And just getting through the day is figuring out how to beat them at their little adorable game. And right. just channel their intense manipulation and, and <laughs> extreme planning and forethought and intelligence and cunningness into positive ways so that we can get every, we can get to where we're going. We can do it. We need to finish our homework. We can get to school on time. We can get to bed, <laughs> get in a bath, maybe go to soccer. You know, we're just trying to do that. And get through another day. <laughs> we're just managing that. It's not like yeah. there's every kid is Amy. Every six-year-old is Amy in some form. Like they're going to act that way. And yeah, so she was left out of a lot of things. And yeah. I think that that was hard for her. And she's filling in her own information too. And she's saying like, how can I win at this? Right. Oh, how can I use this to my benefit? And she should, because that's what kids do. Right. And then no one is telling her otherwise. And the even the the older siblings are trying to spare her. Or it's like, go in the other room. Just, because that's all they know is deflection. They don't have any coping skills yet. Real, because they haven't been taught by the parents, at least. There are some outside people who do nurture them. And at least listen. Grandparents and an aunt or and friends. But they're just doing what they know. And I mean, it's like I said, in that part is just very authentic. The reactions are very, by the kids are very well done, very insightful and, and true, felt really true to me. I have a real issue with the grandfather and the aunt. (laughs) I mean, I have an issue with, with a lot of the adults, but these are my specific issues with the grandfather and the aunt. So listeners, after the divorce gets out there and the family knows The grandfather comes to visit and you can tell he wants to see if he can turn back time and make sure that his son and his daughter-in-law stay together. And he makes a whole speech to Ellie, who is his daughter-in-law, Karen's mom, about how no one in their family has ever gotten divorced. And he takes a lot of pride in that. And he has a conversation with Karen where he talks about like what a bummer it is that like her parents are going to be the first to get divorced. And like, yes, 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 that's all very true. Fine. But as a now grown woman who has been in many years of therapy and realized that her people-pleasing tendencies, et cetera, were very driven by some of the circumstances of a divorce that happened at a very young age, I'm like, you're putting way too much pressure on this child. And then the aunt, Aunt Ruth, who is mom's sister and is kind of like coming in to help when mom is, you know, needing some personal time as she's going through this divorce. Love that about Ruth. But she says things to the kids like, oh, well, this is much worse for mom than it is for you. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't help but bristle at that as a kid who has, again, like processed and reprocessed this over and over and over again. Like, is it? <laughs> yeah. Is it really? Yeah. And like, is it fair for you as an adult to say that to a six and seven year old that like, oh, well, you're just going to have to figure out how to handle this better. You're going to have to be more mature because these adults who have been in the positions of power here, who have had the agency, it's really so much harder for them. And that's not to say, of course, that the divorce isn't 
extremely painful for the parents. But I really like was upset at those little moments with the grandfather and the aunt because I just felt like it put so much unfair pressure on the kids and took all of the responsibility away from the parents. This is my, my, this book gets a means of warning label, not a warning label, but a caution tape wrapped around it because I think I bristled at those too. And it's so antiquated. Like that's not how it is. And it might, it may be, you know, I'm trying to think back to the seventies and eighties. Like, was this how we, is this how we talk to kids? (laughs) You know, is this what we told them about how life works that suck it up buttercup, you know, there's always someone else going that has it harder than you. And you need to rise up and take care of your family. Like, Jeff, you're 14. You need to be the man around here. And like, yeah, this is why I'm like, no, this is not it. And maybe she's showing that. I I don't know. Because I like I the climate that Judy is writing in is not something I'm again, not well versed in. And maybe you can help with that as far as across the scope of her work because it has been such a long time because I've explored her. So considering I always consider the climate that the the author is writing in not only the social political climate that's signing the times, but her own uh, emotional climate, uh, whatever's going on in her family, whatever is going on with her as an author, what is she trying to say? What's her point of view? But I want to tell kids like, no, no, this is not how you're supposed to be. We're going to get you there, but no one is going to come over to my kids and just tell them to suck it up that someone died or someone left or someone that is, you, if you're telling that to my kid, then, you know, you're out of my house, then that's not what I want feeding my children. And, and no one is providing like another counterpoint to that here. And that's why they're filling in blanks. And that's what maybe why the friends do that. You kind of get that, but it's like so far she seeks that for herself and seeing how her friends are behaving and their, the way that their life looks a little different. And it's like, oh, there's another way to be. It's tough. Yeah, it is tough. And as far as Judy's point of view, I mean, I think that there's obviously so much there. But one thing I would note as far as like how this book fits into her larger catalog and some of the patterns that I see. And one thing that I liked about the way the adult child relationship was presented in this book is this permission that it gives kids to question their parents which I think was not really something that was done that much in literature before Judy. Like there's there's one scene specifically in this book where Karen is reflecting on the fact that her mom has been talking about getting a job, has been talking about going back to school to get her degree because she couldn't do that because she had kids when she was really young. And Karen, instead of applauding that, is really frustrated because she feels like her mom can't make up her mind. And you realize as a reader, I think especially as an adult reader, that this is probably the first time that Karen has seen her mom as like a full human who doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily have it all figured out. And I think that changed my perspective on the mom a little bit because I do think that, look, these are parents who are behaving terribly. They're obviously in a very toxic marriage, which they admit to. Like they ultimately do have very frank conversations with the kids about like, We love you, but we cannot be together anymore. This is bad for both of us. This is not healthy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they they are able to admit that. Obviously very upsetting to see them behave the way they behaved in front of their kids in that first scene. And then later on in the book when there's more like throwing and yelling. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I like that once again, as with many of her other books, we see Judy like showing 
young readers what it looks like as a kid to like see your parents as a person as people who don't necessarily know everything I love and that. yeah mm-hmm. and I think that there is some of that like I had a lot more grace for the parents in this book than I did for a character like Aunt Ruth or Grandpa because I just felt like they were they were putting really unhealthy burdens on the kids whereas the parents like really were just figuring things out especially mom and so you know to your question about like Judy and maybe what her perspective might have been I think that's something that I've seen again and again with Judy is like when she wrote this book she was a young mom herself and now we know in hindsight that she was a young mom who who was in an unhappy marriage and who was trying to protect her kids who were starting to see divorce happen around them like I like that Karen was like mom I thought you were supposed to know everything and now you're going to change your mind and like, are we going to school? Are we going to work? Are you going to just like now not want to be my mom anymore? Like Mm -hmm. mom is a person and I do like that. That was probably for me like my favorite part of the adult dynamic. And I think that that is similar to a lot of Judy's other work. I like that she went back to school and she was going to, she's like, well, no, I can't make dinner. You can make a sandwich. You know, I got to study or I have to go to work and then, to, you know, and this mom has never had autonomy Mm-mm. in her life. And she's like, no, I don't have the money to take you to dinner. That's dad has the money. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> and it's really cool to see the mom become kind of come into her own skin and realize what she wants. And, and I want her to be happy. You know, I want her to succeed and to find her own thing. And, and that was really good. I agree. And yeah, I mean, I think one of the best lessons you can teach your kids is to say like, I don't, it's just say, I don't know. Right. And it's okay not to know, but you can keep asking the questions and I will tell you what I know. But I felt like here there wasn't enough telling them what they do know. There was like no moment. Your kids are spiraling. I mean, they're acting out and it's just like, just centering their feelings a little more for me is what I want now. And I see it and I can recognize, again, the place that this book has and the place it came from. But yeah. like I said, I, it's like one bookend with a lot of good stuff, but I'm missing the other bookend to close it so that it does have, that the emotions are like really given precedence to and they're really um, acknowledged and, and dealt with. Our time together is coming to a close, but I did want to add a little bit more context for uh, one of the friends that you've been bringing up throughout our conversation because I thought she was a really great character, and that's Val. Val is a girl who Karen meets when her dad moves into a new apartment complex, and Val lives down the hall with her mom who has also been divorced. Val's a year older, and she's like so much wiser and so much more mature, <laughs> by which I mean she like reads the New York Times and like yeah. has, has educated herself in every way she thinks she can about divorce. And uh, she, of course, is like, you know, like here, you have to read this book about divorce. And she she knows things, which I think is really appealing to Karen. Like just for somebody to tell her, like there is a roadmap for this. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. And Laura, you referenced this earlier, but um, Val's mom is also dating again, which offers... Karen, a little bit of hope that maybe her mom, her dad could be happy in the future. Maybe it won't always be like this. And I think it's worth noting that at the end of this book, it's not as though Karen is giving every day an A+, but we see the family starting to adapt to a new normal and they're starting to figure it out. And I think while that's not like the happiest lesson kids can learn, it is, it's true. Like there are periods in life when we are, we're just figuring it out. We're reestablishing 
what's normal and things will get better slowly. We'll get used to it. And I do think that things will turn around for this family. But on the whole, Laura, I'm curious. We've talked about a lot of things, lots of highs with this book, lots of lows. How do you think this book compares to maybe your expectations for it? And I know you mentioned this at the beginning, like what thoughts do you have about how you might do it differently specifically? I think I would present the toxicity, but also provide a clear road to manage it. Yeah. And showing those things isn't bad, but then you need that moment. And the care, and I would like to see another adult have been a better, now I would love to see some kind of mental health professional or someone that is trusted that really can listen to these kids because like I said, it's always like a game of telephone with this family. They're hearing things on, but she said, I overheard this and they're talking on the phone and and they do have conversations with them, but they're so, they're not deep enough for me. I don't think they're true enough for me all the time. They're very whitewashed kind of like, we're having some trouble. It's not you. You're going to need to give us some time to get through this. It's it's not you. We still love you, but we can't stand each other. So we're going to have to move. It's not, I never got the now that we're here, what questions do you have for us? How can we help you navigate this? This is what I want. Right. The how can we help you navigate? How can we get out of ourselves? Because once you have kids, I don't care who this mom and dad are and who what they haven't found out about themselves. Your responsibility as a human being, as a parent, your kids come first before your drama. And the, that is just being a parent. That is the responsibility you take on when you choose to have not one, but three kids. So it's terribly selfish of these parents in yes they're hurting yes there's this low you know coded abuse this passive aggression these this emotional abuse this toxicity and these parents i feel for them because they're feeling and i understand those relationships but the minute you have a kid they need to you know they can't always come first but there needs to be time for them to deconstruct that and i felt that that is what i wanted more of For this book, for me to say this is a healthy manual and a healthy representation of what we should be telling kids about divorce, what they should be reading to cope with it, that we need that selfishness. We need a break from that and for the parents to come out of that and to be better parents, essentially, and stop being like a husband and wife for a minute and to be parents. Yeah. I bet Judy would would make some different choices, especially now that she has the perspective of like, Times were really weird for me. Like, it was a weird vibe in my life when I wrote that book. I I have a feeling she would do it differently. But um, I enjoyed unpacking this. It was a lot to process, but a great conversation. And I appreciate you having it with me. Other than it's not the end of the world, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? Oh, okay. Let's do some YA. I have two critique partners that just publish books that are, if you want, like you want true emotional resonance with trauma, with beautiful emotions, please read anything by Joan F. Smith, especially the Half Orphans Handbook and The Other Side of Infinity. And please read Alison L. Bitts, The Unstoppable Bridget Bloom, because they deal with toxicity, drama, parent suicide, some extremely hard topics, mental health, in such a layered, resonant, beautiful way that is also joyful and fun for teens. So please read them. And from Great Middle Grade, please read anything by uh, Chris Barron because he does some of the best middle grade work right now, just beautiful, joyful, important work. Uh, He has three books out right now. So Chris Barron, excellent for this space. Great, I will include links to those books in the show notes for this episode, along with links to your work and Laura, 
about two weeks from now as this episode comes out, you have a new book coming out and I have the title in front of me because it's a great title and I want to make sure I say it correctly. A British Girl's Guide to Hurricanes and Heartbreak out September 26th. Congratulations. What can you tell us about it? Thank you. This is the companion novel to um, A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow. And in that book, there is uh, Orion's sister, Flora, is 15. Well, now she's 18. And unfortunately, um, Orion and, and Flora have lost their mother to um, early onset dementia, and she has just passed away. And this book really deals with the different ways that people can grieve. And uh, Flora's particular mode of grieving is not always kosher or acceptable to everyone on, in her family. And she feels that she's an outlier in her grief. And she makes some choices due to that, that alienate her emotionally from her family and she feels that she needs to escape. So she does. And she follows um, from Cuban girl, Lila, Lila Reyes's journey from Miami to England. Well, Florida does this the opposite way. She mm. goes to Lila's family in Miami without telling anyone, mind you, because that's still Flora. <laughs> and um, she gets to Miami thinking that the new change of space is going to help her to complete her goals, which is picking this future that's unknown to her. She has no idea who she is and what she wants to be. And she feels that Miami is going to give her the sunshine is going to dry out, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the, the gloom of England is going to give her a new place. And she's with people who aren't expecting things of her all the time and make and reminding her of her grief. So while there, um, she has an emotional upheaval and gets involved with a teen influencer who shares her love of photography and kind of mentors her and she's got to help him a little bit. And so there's some, some of that. And also she's got to reconcile her relationships from home, including her longtime friend, Gordon Wallace, who is also now 19. And there are some difficult feelings between these two that she can't process due to, to grief. So Miami is about where everything comes to a head um, in a hurricane of emotion and, and heartbreak and love and hope. And it has, I promise it has the most joyful, beautiful, hopeful ending. Yeah, so that's, that's what's happening. And if you're a fan of Cuban Girl, all the characters are in there in some point. Leela and Orion are there. Uh, they're making a reprise. So you get to see some of your favorites. And it's three years later to the day of like when it comes out. So And they're all three years older. So kind of lined up nicely for where they are in life. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoy British Girl. So fun. Well, get your copy of Cuban Girl and pre-order British Girl now because we love a pre-order. And if you're we listening do. to this after <laughs> September 26th, you can go get a copy of both now. They'll both be out. And Laura, I wish you the best with the new book. And it was so great chatting with you. Thank you for your thoughtful insights and just for diving really deep on this one with me. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.